Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Laura Orlich, thank you very much for coming on our podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you for welcoming me. I'm really glad to be here with you. So I'm currently the founder and CEO of a small company called Artivist, which will have second birthday in a month. Before founding my own company, I have been working in an international corporate environment for 22 years, dedicated to people development and organizational development. I'm Croatian and I've lived most of my life in Croatia and started working in Croatia. And then in 2011, I moved to Italy and in 2015 to Austria, to Vienna. So I've had about nine years of international working experience and working mostly with between 10 and 15 countries, which was really a wonderful, rich experience. And after, you know, having had wonderful experiences, professional ones, I realized at one point that there was nothing more that I wanted to do in corporate environment and that it was time for me to leave the corporate environment and do something else. So in 2020, I came back to Croatia with my two boys. I have two teenage boys. I had a nice sabbatical year, year and a half of really taking the time to decompress, to enjoy and slowly dream up and define what I was going to do from now on. And currently my company has two souls. One is a startup soul and it is dedicated to connecting the people with the magic of art in museums. And the other part is a consultancy soul of the company where I do what I call people projects. So projects dedicated to sustainable leadership development, to talent development with clients who come to me. And if I like the challenge and what they need, I take the project. And so this soul of the company that relies on my extensive experience is financing the startup part. So this is how I work now. Often the way it goes, it seems difficult to monetize the creative side sometimes. I'd like to ask, when you say connecting people to art museums, what does that mean? What does that mean? So I will take the story a little bit back to my family to explain a little bit why and how I came to this. And then I'll tell you a bit more about the concrete solution that we are working on. So I was born into a family of artists. My father was a sculptor, my mother a painter. They met in the Academy of Fine Arts in Zagreb. I have an older brother who is a painter and a restorer. My mom also dedicated big part of her life to restoring and she worked in the largest museum in Croatia for a long time. And so I grew up in, not in playgrounds with other children, but in museums, galleries, churches, and art studios of friends of my family. And I had like this huge overload of exposure to art. Every Tuesday, there was an exhibition opening. Every Sunday, we needed to go to revisit that exhibition. 
and things like that. So in that environment, I chose my art was classical ballet. So I I took up ballet school and stayed in, in ballet school for a long time and spent a lot of time in theater. So between the theater, the National Theater and my mother's museum, which were in the same square in Zagreb, one across the other. But then I completely somehow lost interest in art and didn't know what to study. So I went to study economics. This is what people who don't know what to do in Croatia very often choose. And there, as I was studying, I discovered the field of organizational development management, people management, and I liked that. So I became the first person in my family to start working in a for-profit company. I started working in biggest bank in Croatia, which had a good HR function, and they invested a lot in development. And I had a lot of opportunities for growth there, and I loved the work. But as I started there, I promised to myself, I started 22 years, I promised to myself that in my 40s, I would leave the corporate world and have a much freer lifestyle, working on different projects and different things that would make my soul happy. So my career development in this bank went very well. I was getting a lot of opportunities. I was always looking for interesting projects and, you know, showing interest. And I was given a lot of opportunities. So I grew very fast. And I always dreamed of international life. So living abroad, probably also because most of my family on my mother's side and on my father's side went abroad and lived in other countries of Europe and US. And somehow this international life seemed wonderful to me. So when this bank where I was working in Croatia joined a larger banking group, Unicredit, which was present in Italy, Austria, Germany, and was, you know, enlarging its presence in Eastern Europe, I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to get a bit of this international life. And so little by little, I was working on different projects and After also combining my family life and managerial life here in Croatia, which was much easier in Croatia than it would have been abroad in Italy or Austria. We might come back to that later. So after coming back from second maternity, I decided together with my family that it was the right time to move abroad. There was an organized process in this banking group to show the interest and to be considered for such positions. And so I went abroad to Torino, where this group, Unicredit, had several years earlier established a center for developing leadership. So as the group grew to a huge banking group present in more than 15 countries, 160,000 employees, and it grew through acquisitions, they wanted to facilitate and accelerate the development of a common group culture. And they decided to do it by establishing a center that would dedicate to development of the top 5,000 people of the company. And this center had fantastic facilities. It was imagined and brought to life by Anna Simeoni, a person that was somebody that I looked up to professionally from the first moment I met her. And so when there was a chance to go to work there, I was very happy. And 
we were developing programs for leaders and for talents from across the group. What happened there is that in order to expose people to different experiences, not only mentally, but also emotionally, we were using art. Hmm. So we would engage artists or bring people to an exhibition or have them work with a musician or have them co-create some artworks with the help of Educational Center or a Contemporary Museum. And so art started creeping back into my life, no? but in a different way. I started using it in my work and I started, you know, going, raising again my interest in visiting museums and everything. And in that period in Torino, I had my first experiences where art really moved me profoundly, you know, that I would have encounters that would, I would describe them as a bit transcendental, non-dual, really profound experiences. And that led me to look for more and more art visit museums more and more often. And as I was sharing this growing love for rediscovered art in museums, With my friends, I noticed that most of my friends from this banking world or other areas of life were saying, you know, I don't understand art. You know, I get bored there. I'm just not cut out. I'm not capable of enjoying art. So I heard a lot of my friends just dismissing it as something that they just don't have what it takes to understand it. And that started, you know, a process of questioning in my mind. And as my experiences were getting more beautiful and happening more and more often, I thought, okay, I have to do something to help also other people connect more with art. And as I moved to Vienna and entered into my 40s in 2016, you know, I remembered the promise that I made to myself back when I was 22. And I decided, okay, I still don't know what exactly to do if I go out. So in the next few years, I will still work in this banking group. I like the job and I will articulate a bit better what I want to do next. And as soon as I made that decision and that promise, new promise to myself, I received this huge promotion. We had the head of Central and Eastern Europe business, the one Carlo Vivaldi that you also interviewed in Horizon. And he was very dedicated to people development as one of the key levers of, you know, growth strategy for the region. And somehow his focus on people development and my love and competences in people development matched. And he brought me up to the position of you know, head of HR for Central and Eastern Europe. Huge responsibility, huge job for me, single mother with two kids. But I thought, okay, this must be it. This must be this final big job that I do in the corporate world. And after a few years in this job, I will be ready to leave. And this is exactly what happened. So I really, it was a very challenging, but wonderful experience. It also, you know, did well for me economically and allowed me to then have a year of sabbatical when I decided to leave and to have the safety cushion so that I could go ahead. And in 2020, when I left banking, I articulated what I wanted to do about this connecting people with art. 
and developed the idea of creating personalized museum visits for people powered by digital and by storytelling. What does it mean? So that when you come to a museum which has a big permanent collection, the museum offers you a solution on your mobile that tells you, okay, David, you know, how do you feel today? What topics are on your mind? And you see different topics of interest, but not topics like Renaissance painting or Baroque sculpture, but technology and innovation, food, fashion and influencers, life challenges, things like that. And it also asks you about what is your mood? Are you into something, having fun or recharging or exploring? And based on some of these profiling questions, the app prepares a guided visit for you. And it uses the artworks or presents the artworks from a perspective of the themes and the mood that you chose. And in that way, gives you a completely different art experience because it helps you through stories to see art from this perspective, see what is relevant for you and to engage you and enrich your life and things that you're interested in in a better way. It also gives you possibility to come to the same museum several times and every time have a different experience seeing different artworks. And on the other hand, this helps a lot museums to get to know their visitors much better, to collect information about their experience. And we also decided that the way we develop the content has to be valuable and engaging for the museum and for the local community. So we've developed a process where the museum chooses the themes and develops the stories by engaging citizens, students, friends of museums, other groups of citizens, into work of co-creation of these stories and in creating also stronger engagement with the heritage and with the museum. So this is the dream that we are working on and making it happen step by step. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, Laura. One thing I liked about photography and architecture is this intersection between art and science and this cross-pollination where I think it's more honest with the chaotic universe and you get inspiration and execution. Do you think your international corporate experience played that part in your unique journey with Artivist? For sure, for sure. I think because I was also thinking when I decided I want to follow the dream, okay, why? Why me? What is it that, you know, makes me relevant or capable to do it? And I think that it is the fact that I grew up among artists and I literally grew up in a museum. I know the museum inside out. I spend five years every day in a museum. And on the other hand, I grew up in corporate structure focused on tracking client experience, understanding what the client needs, finding ways to engage employees and using processes, systems and management techniques that in the museum environment don't exist. Also because museums are small communities. Take, for example, Prado Museum in Madrid. It's one of the most important museums in the world. It has around 200 employees. 
And, you know, my work in a company of 100,000 employees and all of the management processes just brings a different focus, processes, discipline, experiences that can add a lot of value. My focus on the experiential side for the visitor and on the side of museum getting to know their visitor and also the processes, how to do it, how to industrialize it is what I bring. And let's say we are here to enhance this enormous wealth of stories and knowledge about artworks that museums have and to make it more understandable to people. So we are not entering the domain of art history. We are just helping it make more impact and become more relevant in the lives of people. Is there a cutoff in terms of art periods? Are you focused on like classical up until postmodern? Is it continually evolving with the artists of today? So what we are interested as our target clients are museums with art collections, which have permanent collections. They can be of one period, specific period. They can be from antique archaeology to contemporary. It can be anything. So we are bringing the solution when we are bringing the process. And the museum is the one that, with the help of our process, generates then the stories and the content, and we help to make it engaging. Interesting. So can this process be applied in other domains as well in that case? It can. What we have been thinking is it can be applied also for, let's say, visiting towns, no? so that you as a tourist can choose what topics interest you and that you get a tour which is you know, focused on your interest and also gives you a possibility to visit the same town from different perspectives with different lens. But to give you an example, just, you know, in a museum. So many museums have, for example, many paintings of Madonnas, no? Mary with child. So you can tell a story about the painter, or you can tell a story if it's, for example, a 15th, 16th, 17th century Madonna. You can tell a story about influencers and tell a person that, you know, do you know that Madonna was basically an influence in in her time because the painting of Madonna represented the standard of beauty in that region, in that time. And if it was a 16th century or 17th, if you lived in a town where this Madonna, this painting was, this was probably the only image of a beautiful woman that you could see. There were no, no, there were not many images around. There were no photographs. There were no other media. So your only chance to see a beautiful, well-dressed woman was to go to church and admire the Madonna. And imagine if it was a Madonna lactans, you know, that you can see also breast. Very unique opportunity. So this is a kind of story that we can tell. Or for the same painting, for somebody who is more interested in technology, we would tell a story about the pigments, you know, that the painter did not have a shop and did not choose from a palette of colors which ones, the tubes that he wanted to buy. But he needed to think carefully where to get the pigments, how much money he would spend for the pigments, how he would mix the colors to make them permanent to not get poisoned in the process, no, and yeah. to make good quality. 
So there are so many angles and so many stories you can tell about artworks that it's, you know, just amazes me. And I want to help museums tell those stories and engage people more because the statistics about museum visits in Europe are not very, not very encouraging. Yeah. So like on average, a little more than 40% of people visit a cultural site once in a year. In northern countries, in Scandinavia, it goes above 60%. But in Italy, it's around 30%. In Eastern Europe, it's way below 30%. In Spain, it's below 35%. And this population of people who have the habit of visiting museums is shrinking because, you know, they are getting older and dying. And the new ones who have the habit of going to museums are in smaller numbers. So in terms of, let's say, the market, potential markets, the unlikely visitors who between choosing a museum or something easier, fun, or entertainment will very often go for something else. And we want to capture those, bring them into museum and make them have an experience that will change their understanding of how interesting a museum can be in their life. You bring up a lot of interesting points there. That absence really makes the experience so much more profound. We're kind of skimming along the surface with all of these Images on Instagram, for example, whereas what you mentioned, I didn't even think about, but it's so obvious now that that statue or that painting would be the only image you would see in your town or in your life. So your focus, it's almost like having your eyes closed for a a year and then opening them. The colors must seem so much more vivid and the experience so much more profound. So yeah, it's probably good to try to cultivate that, at least in some small way in our lives to Mm -hmm. go back and forth between the variety and the abundance into the focused on just a single piece. Yes. Also, there are a lot of stories to tell about intersections between art and science, historical events, geographical events. For example, a lot of centers of wonderful paintings, you know, and art in Europe were developed near harbors, you know, Flemish painting and Venetian school of color. They were there because the ships were coming, the pigments were available. So the materials were there that would allow you to create something. No, So there are so many stories that you can tell. It's amazing. Yeah. I spoke to a gentleman who's a CEO of a large company, and he's talking about his leadership journey, his constant growth, and talking to mentors to get their perspective. And sometimes, I guess these days, there's kind of an aversion to using the word advice because it's kind of impossible to give advice because we're on different paths. But trying to understand, and he brings us up, he tries to understand the context. So if someone says, I was in this situation, he can see kind of their thinking and then kind of map in his own situation that helps upgrade his own thinking and improves the probability of success. And it seems like with art too, you often see pictures of religious icons and stuff because they were the sponsors. They were the ones funding it. And that was the current that it was easier to get seen and show your work. So that's what people did. But these days where people might not be Christian or Catholic or 
think that religion is controlling or something. I want to be counterculture and break away. That might be a barrier. However, from what you said, it seems like if you look beneath that surface, you can actually see a lot about the conversation with how they were representing these icons. Yeah, sure, it's a Madonna and there's another Madonna, but look at how this artist applied it in this way. And through your artivist endeavor, maybe you can explain to people about that storytelling aspect. Is that what you're thinking about? Yes, yes, exactly. So coming back to Madonna, sometimes a Madonna is actually made at the image of a lover or a wife of a mecena that is paying for it and wants to immortalize her image through it, you know. Very often Madonna or later mythical themes were the only way to represent people and show a bit of skin because everything else was not allowed, was not considered decent. So there is a lot to be shared. And especially what you say about context, I believe that hearing stories about context and about other people's lives, circumstances, what influenced it is incredibly powerful. And I, this was also extremely useful always in my work when I was dedicating my time to people development at individual team and at organizational level, no? And very often I would try things on myself or look at other people and their challenges and looking at the context, you know, if something had helped me to develop, to grow, to reach an opportunity and I see other people struggling, then I would look, okay, what is it in my context that helped me out? How can I replicate it systematically for our organization and make it better? No, for example, I knew I wanted to have international experience and as Unicredit took over my bank in 2002 and I went out in 2011, so it was like nine years. I was getting into contact with different people on different projects and some of the people were, you know, I decided that they were my mentors, even if, you know, they didn't know that I considered them my mentors and I would every once in a while talk with them and I was visible to them. And so when the opportunities came, it was easy for them to decide about me because they already knew something about me. And later on, when I was working together with Carlo as head of Central and Eastern Europe HR, we wanted to do something about the succession process to facilitate the movement of people and development of people for top positions in the banks. And we realized that, you know, we had 11 banks in the countries and we realized we wanted people to enter in management board positions but to have international experience to be ready for that board and cross-functional experience. But to have international experience, people needed to be ready to go out. And if they go out, you need to put them in a country where somebody will take them in, will offer them, you know, a good opportunity. And what we realized is that our CEOs in the banks had the issue that between a local person with defects and strengths, but that they know would always beat in competition an unknown with all of the fantastic competences from which I know only a this size photo. So we said, okay, we need to do something about getting these people, these potential candidates, international ones, more real to them. No, we need to create an experience 
but not just an interview experience, because if a CEO in a country needs to fill a very important job and has interview with few people from his own bank and somebody from abroad, this is not a good time because the stress is already there, pressure to choose, importance of position. So we decided, okay, we need to get the CEOs together with potential candidates before in an environment where we can let the candidates be their best and show themselves, you know, without the pressure of interview for a specific position. And so we decided we will do a process as CEOs were meeting quarterly that on every meeting, which was usually a day and a half, we would invite a group of potential successors, eight to 10 people, let them present themselves in a five minute pitch where they want to make an impression and you know show why they are unique, and then let them network and socialize for the rest of the meeting, you know, dinner time, the next day and everything. So that later when an opening happens, that the CEO is now not considering only a CV and a small photo, but has this real personal experience. And it really made a difference. We've accelerated a lot the movement between countries and our succession pipeline grew in strength very, very quickly. And then when you move people, when you have people coming to senior positions among different banks, you have immediately transfer of experiences. You have people coming from one market where they are a market leader in a small country to another market, bigger one where the bank is third or fourth in the market. It's a completely different ballgame. So they are bringing different experiences and being exposed to completely different market circumstances, which then really accelerates their growth. And now I can say several years, five years, six years later, most of the people we had in the pool growing to management board positions, the best of them are all now CEOs or deputy CEOs in, in those countries. Congratulations. That's interesting. You had kind of a parallel journey, it sounded like, where you had your dream of getting back into art after university, but you had to go the corporate route to pay the bills. Yeah. But listening to you talk about what you did in the corporate sector, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. I you really grew it. a lot and you have no regrets. Absolutely. Because I did not know what I wanted to do in, in my 40s. I just knew I wanted to get out. And I said, OK, in the meanwhile, let's make the best of this experience. And as I started working in HR and I got my first managerial experience very early when I was 25, I got my first team of seven people, everybody older, more experienced and more knowledgeable about the work than I was. I immediately was put in a position that, you know, the only way that I can bring value is to be a really good manager that makes the most out of the expertise of my team to create value. I don't have the expertise they have, so I need to find a way to add value. And I focus early on on developing my managerial skills. At 27, I became like a middle manager, again, moved to a bigger structure with people being experts and me not knowing as much as them about the field that I was managing. And again, I relied on them. I was asking for a lot of feedback and I was really open about saying, look, guys, I can make generate value only by helping us work together very well. 
and facilitating good processes and relying on your expertise. And as I was in people development, I had a lot of psychologists in my team who had also a lot of experience with different psychometric and other tools. I was always offering myself as guinea pig for any tool they had. So I experienced it, you know, as a user, they got to know me from all of different angles. You know, they had direct experience and they had the profiles that came out of different tools. And this also facilitated, let's say, this bridging the distance between the boss and and the team and, you know, working together in creating value. So I really, I enjoyed it a lot. Did you learn anything about yourself when you were a guinea pig to the psychometric testing that you didn't expect? Yes, yes, always. You know, it was always 80% of things that I knew. And then, you know, realizing, okay, for example, I knew that I was determined and focused when I wanted to, you know, reach a goal. But then in one of the tests, I realized I was really way on one extreme of the population in this determination. So I understood, okay, this is not something that's very common and it probably also has some negative side. So let's understand what this extreme focus brings as a potential negative side and how I can manage it. So also learning not only what I'm like, but compared to a wider population, you know, to understand where I'm extreme and where I'm in a normal range. That was very, very helpful. I think nature is fair. I think it gives you information, but sometimes we don't realize that it's giving us information. And I've found like the concept of the Jungian shadow mm-hmm. when like someone annoys me, it's because there's something in me that's reacting to that. It's not like they're this separate entity and I'm this separate entity. And so that was really kind of humbling and empowering at the same time where it's like, oh, I'm participating in this environment and that can actually give me information about myself. So should I apply myself more or should I maybe be more selfish or something and, you know, to try to assert myself, I guess selfish is not the wrong word. But yeah, so it's interesting that you had that experience through the psychometric testing. Yes, yes. And a lot of feedback from my colleagues, from my team, from my peers, from my bosses. I was asking for feedback. It's, you know, sometimes it's good to hear it. Sometimes it's difficult to hear it, especially if, as you say, points to something that you don't want to look at. Right. Which is usually where you have to look at if you want to know. <laughs> yeah. It's not always comfortable, but somehow, you know, being in the field of people development, I always, you know, considered that it was my responsibility to walk the talk, no? And to right. use all of the tools and all of the processes that I wanted then the organization to use as well. Well, people are smart. They're smarter than I think we tend to give them credit for as an individual. And you can't fake stuff for very long. Just a sense, like people can sense when you're being inauthentic. So yeah, I, I commend you for for championing that, for demonstrating that and doing the work yourself so you could walk the talk, as you say. What is the entrepreneurial environment like in Croatia or in Zagreb specifically? So when I came back, I didn't know, you know, I was... <laughs> brought up in a corporate world. So going out on my own, I needed to learn basics, you know, of how to run a company. And I found a lot of support. So there is this organization called Blue Office that offers free of charge 
all kinds of trainings that they have this like one week program that gives you all the basics to start your work and tells you, you know, how to go about it. They are also fantastic with giving advice. There is a small financial support if you want to start your own company and you get some financial support that, you know, gives you money for first few months of working and buying some equipment. And this is a program that is co-financed by the EU funds. But then basically you're on your own. So my challenge was that in 2020, there was an earthquake in Zagreb. So all of the potential museum clients in Zagreb are not available to me because the museums are closed for renovation, opening maybe first ones in 26, 27 the museum that is most interesting to me will open in 2030. <laughs> wow. But on the other hand, you know, what helps me a lot is my network of people that I loved to work with back in the corporate world. I'm now most of the projects, you know, on the consultancy side are coming from people that I really clicked with, connected it and loved working, you know, in my corporate life and they are opening some doors or we are working together on some things. So I don't work much for clients in Croatia. Somehow now I have more work in Italy, for example, and having learned Italian very well helped a lot. It was good that I did that. And for museums also, it's, you know, a bit of a challenge finding museums where we can open the doors. And mostly we've opened some doors in Italy and understood what we needed to do to make the project ready to move on. So there are some potential clients in the pipeline. And basically, I would say in terms of getting started and first year, a really good supportive environment in Croatia. Then later on, it you know, it all depends how you... Meant right. to develop your business and everything. And since I have this very specific dreams, you know, it's not a retail product that goes to, you know, many people. I also, you know, have a different time horizon and I'm, let's say, managing risks in terms of not being in a financial tight spot. So I'm financially, I can take time to develop. You're perhaps not the typical yeah. entrepreneur in some sense, but you're playing to your strengths and you have international experience, which serves you well, it seems. Yes. I had a question. You brought up the fund that you get to help launch a startup in Croatia it comes from this EU fund. I remember my grandma was excited about the prospect of Croatia joining the EU. It would elevate it to the global stage. And has that kind of lived up to the hype, like living there? And is it largely a positive being part of the EU or there's some challenges? I'm curious. I would say that it's largely positive. I consider myself more a citizen of Europe than Croatia, also because of my life rhythm and, and the work that is extended uh, beyond Croatia. I think that Croatia, in terms of quality of life and natural environment, is wonderful. On the other hand, Croatia is a very young state, you know, 30 years is not much. It had a huge challenge, you know, we had war until 95, which depleted our resources, uh, destroyed a lot of industry and a lot of economic power. 
And in terms of leadership, something else happens when you have a war. So the people and the competences that you need during the war and during this, you know, fighting for independence and national assertion. This is one set of competencies very different from the kind of competencies you need to develop a country economically and socially. But the people who during the war made great results, earned our freedom and, you know, were heroes, what happened is that they then got positions of power in the country in peacetime. And so we needed to go through a period of more than 10 years of wrong people in wrong positions where competences that they have completely in mismatch with what the country needs to grow. And I think that that was a big issue for us. So we basically, between the war and the wrong kind of, you know, leadership, we lost at least 15 years of development. So now we are still in terms of political economic context. We are a young country with immature political systems, making a lot of mistakes, suffering from a lot of typical illnesses such as corruption, such as as bad organization, missing opportunities, doing something superficially. But I'm still optimistic. We have great geographical position, wonderful natural resources. We have people who are smart, who are eager to learn, who many, since we were in a, became part of EU 10 years ago, went abroad like me and developed in international contexts. And I'm not the only one coming back. There are still people going out, a lot of young students also using Erasmus and other opportunities to study within Europe. But I think it's like a lot of Croatians are getting great international experience and a lot of that experience will come back and will help further grow this country. Nice. Uh, my grandma would be proud. <laughs> so as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, where can people see what you're doing? I will show it on LinkedIn and Artivist will have a channel on Instagram. For now, we are still in the phase of development and working with very few clients. So as soon as we are ready, I think it will be sometimes end of November. We will also do a bit of more testing with friends and family and everything. And then we will we will let it let it. Show. OK, yes. Do you have a target like by this time we want to do this do you want this to go global what are, what are your aspirations <laughs> with this uh, so my aspiration is also to work with several museums every year it's not something that i see going you know spreading like virus across hundreds of museums I see the beauty and the challenge in working with the museum because this project is very much about organizational development of museum also transforming in how they see their role in society. So learning how to engage community, how to create these campaigns of co-creating new stories together with their citizens, including more and more of art, artworks from their collection into this, this way of presenting presenting it and also how to, you know, free themselves from, you know, only typical classical canons of representing, you know, the information about the work from art history perspectives. 
And this is the work that is, you know, the most beautiful to me. You know, the, the solution, the digital solution that we are now developing and will be ready in two months is just a channel. Uh, what I want, I want, I see myself every year working with few new museums in implementing the solution and in building a community of these museums where we will connect them and they will share experiences and help the process grow, you know, through a learning community. Sounds fascinating and a worthwhile goal. What's one of your favorite art pieces? There are many. So there are two Croatian artists that I just love. One is Vlaho Bukovac, a painter from, let's say, turn 19th to 20th century, who had a fantastic career and worked throughout Europe. And another one is Ivan Meštrović, also same period sculptor who, you know, in 1911, when Gustav Klimt in, in an exhibition in Rome got the first prize for painting, Meštrović got the first prize for sculpture. And also his monuments are from, from U.S., from Chicago to many places in Europe. But, you know, list of artworks, I, I cannot say what is my favorite. There are too many. <laughs> but it, it is about, really, I see it as encounters with, with artworks. It's, it's not just about beauty. Is it beautiful to me or not? It's what I feel when this connection in front of artwork happens. This is where the magic is. And you, through your organizational theory and lived experience, sounds like you're pretty good at figuring out, matching those experiences for people and helping them understand that connection and the yes. stories. So I want to create the, you know, the perfect circumstances that make it more, you know, probable for this to happen. Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing your growth and we'll direct people to your LinkedIn page for now and eagerly anticipate further yes. updates and websites as they come. Yes. Thanks. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Laura. It's been a pleasure. It's been uh, lovely to spend time with you talking about my path so far. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Horizon Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.